their politics here, I think, are Trumpier than mm-hmm. your standard donor network. I mean, I think it is sort of a, a, an appeal to the more red-pilled tech types who are younger, are people who would, would be supportive of kind of the populism of a turning point. And if you did a straw poll of, of Rockbridge, I think you'd find 70-30 for Trump, uh, 30 for others. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, October 19th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about a secretive group attempting to remake conservative politics in the image of Donald Trump, but with a younger and more tech-savvy edge. It's called the Rockbridge Network. It has ties to J.D. Vance and Peter Thiel, and as Teddy explains, its influence is already growing. And later, Bill Cohan and Ben psychoanalyze Sam Bankman-Fried and discuss an FTX insider's perspective on his fall. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer, who covers all things money and a lot of dark political money. Teddy, though, you have a piece out on Puck right now about a group that isn't the Koch brothers. It's not some nefarious like 501c4 getting involved in politics. It is a group called the Rockbridge Network, which sounds like a, you know, startup investment advisory firm or something. But there are some pretty famous names behind this. Among them, J.D. Vance, uh, the U.S. Senator from Ohio, longtime pal of Peter Thiel. Can you tell our listeners what the Rockbridge Group is? Uh, I feel like I'm making it sound even more nefarious with with every passing second here. Sure. We'll make it as uh, nefarious as you want, because I think that they have made themselves out to be maybe more nefarious or, or more sexy than maybe they deserved, because they've been very secretive. Over the last two or three years, the Rockbridge Network has sort of formed a coalition of about 125 donors who invest in conservative media, in conservative grassroots Hmm. uh, organizing, and just in sort of the general kind of project of 
taking over the American right. And they've done it through the Rockbridge Network, which meets twice a year and had its most most recent meeting in Dallas, Texas, the beginning of this month, as we mm-hmm. broke here earlier this week in Puck. And I think it's interesting for, for two reasons. The first is sort of the sex appeal of, of the names. People like Peter Thiel are involved. This was actually founded by J.D. Vance, as you mentioned. Uh, Rebecca Mercer of kind of the, the Bannon era, Bannon era uh, Republican Party was in Dallas mm-hmm. earlier this month. So there are bold-faced names. But the real reason that's interesting to me is the second reason, which is I've written a lot and we've talked a lot on this podcast, Peter, about the ways in which Silicon Valley donors have sort of overtaken the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. becoming more and more the, the kind of the center of power in donor politics on the left kind of during the resistance era. I think this is happening on the right too. And this is not like a tech group per se, though there are lots of tech people who are involved. And I think this reveals that the ways in which the Koch network and sort of more Wall Street aligned Republican donor universes no longer call the shots in the Republican Party. Um, and you have kind of a younger group of, of people, which I think is definitely true uh, of the type of people that go to Rockbridge events, who are the new movers and shakers in conservative politics. And I think that is what's really interesting to me is the lack of gray hair. Yeah, I think, and you wrote about that too. You you went to some Coke summits back in the day, and you didn't yeah. see anyone there, speakers <laughs> or attendees without gray hair. And if you think about both, like the interest groups and the outside money groups that have ruled conservative politics for so long, you had like the Coke brothers, obviously, which you know cared about getting the government off our backs and low taxes and that sort of thing, and they were rage about socialism and whatnot. You had Christian groups like the Christian Coalition and Family Research Council or whatever. But what's interesting in reading your piece about Rockbridge is like it does Mm -hmm. feel like it represents this younger generation of contrarian tech influenced people with money who want to be relevant and be in a game. And it seems like they care about culture war stuff (laughs) more than a specific kind of ideology. Am I getting that right? I think there's a an element of that that's true, an element that's not true. I think the okay. what what what's true is this is a group of people who definitely care about you know if, if you think about JD Vance's politics, right? I mean, mm-hmm. or someone like David Sachs, uh, who's sort of a a, right. a tech podcaster, their, their politics. You know, I think the animating issue for this group of people is sort of an intellectual spin on Trumpism, where it's isolationism on foreign policy. It is okay. centered on, you know, the, the threats like China and general kind of economic protectionism and and anti-union kind of sentiment. It is okay. not as much of kind of like I, I, when, I, when I think about the people who are involved with Rockbridge, they're not complaining about like trans kids as their like, mm. primary issue set. But I think what is true is this is actually a group of people that cares a lot about conservative media. Mm. Um, Rockbridge kind of started um, when J.D. Vance and this guy Chris Buskirk in 2019 were trying to kind of seed you know, investigative conservative media or conservative journalism. Yeah. And you know, people who were involved in this were some early investors in the Daily Caller. And in mm. fact, there is a kind of venture capital firm that was born out of Rockbridge, which it was announced this week, is leading the first investment in Tucker Carlson's new media company. And Tucker has spoken at previous Rockbridge events under the radar. So I think it is definitely true that they they care about the culture wars and they care about kind of the, the ways in which 
media can be used to further the culture wars. Like I, I would think about Tucker, Sachs, J.D. Vance as sort of the uh, avatars of, of kind of the Rockbridge movement. And you estimate that based on their membership, which isn't huge, and the commitments they're making, which aren't huge, that they probably have about $12.5 million in funds for grant making and advocacy stuff. That's not a lot of money in politics. Hmm. But as you mentioned, they got to start somewhere. Yeah, I mean, uh, the I, I struggled with this, Peter, like, you know, to figure out how much money they were really moving. The You know, Rockbridge is sort of in stealthy. If you, if you Google or go to the website, which is uh-huh. linked in our story, like there's nothing about it. And one of the challenges here is, you know, they, they want some attention, but not that much attention. Um, and it reminds me of kind of covering, you know, or, you know, reading coverage of kind of Coke back in the day where they for a long time operated in stealth and then the stealth sort of backfired. That's kind of what I was saying mm-hmm. at, the, at the beginning here. Right. The amount of money that they are, these people are moving, I do not know the answer to that. And I, and I would love to know. And if someone knows, feel free to to, to message me all your internal Rockbridge documents. But it, it is it is a minimum commitment of $100,000 a year to, you know, Rockbridge recommended programming. That could be, you know, a grassroots program in Arizona that tries mm-hmm. to organize outdoorsmen into kind of uh, GOTV programming. It could be something like Tucker Carlson's media company, or it could be who knows what. But it, it, like Coke or like Democracy Alliance, it is sort of like a, a an advisory network where Rockbridge is not actually taking any of this money in itself. They basically recommend programs to fund. Um, so that's sort of the gist. But that also makes it really hard to figure out how much money they actually control. You mentioned the GOTV thing, for example. Sure. You know, they're not, it doesn't seem like they're interested in like getting involved in Republican primaries, but are they, speaking of the generational difference from other groups, are they trying to build any kind of political power from the ground up or maybe from from Gen Z up? You know, are they going to dabble in the kind of like turning point USA space mm. or is that is that not something they're interested in? This is more like investment vehicle by another political name. So, Peter, this group actually has tried very intentionally to kind of sidestep the Republican presidential primary. You know, they met in Dallas earlier this month, and two weeks later, this past weekend, the American Opportunity Alliance, which is sort of a another kind of donor network, also met in Dallas, and they invited presidential campaigns, Nikki Haley's campaign, Ron DeSantis' campaign, to do these presentations to AOA members. Mm-hmm. Rockbridge is trying to, like, steer clear of, like, exactly that. They want to basically be open embrace for everybody. But essentially, their politics here, I think, are Trumpier than mm-hmm. your standard donor network. I mean, I think it is sort of a, an appeal to the more red-pilled you know, tech types who are younger, are people who would, would be supportive of kind of the, the populism of a turning point. But, you know, and if you did a straw poll of, of Rockbridge, I think you'd find 70-30 for Trump, uh, 30 for others. Vivek, probably. Vivek. <laughs> there's a Vivek contingent. There's like an RFK contingent. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a uh, probably a small DeSantis contingent. But right, the, the, these are not your kind of traditional capital R Republicans. Um, I guess every Republican's capital R Republican. But you know what I'm saying. These are a group of kind of iconoclastic, eclectic, populist, conservative tech people who are not necessarily, you know, going to the RNC annual meeting. Uh, last question, Teddy, before you go, uh, which conservative billionaire uh, outside funder are you going to dress up as for Halloween? 
You know, uh, my, my, my Larry Ellison costume is uh, kind of <laughs> un- underneath my... Uh, Underneath my pillow, I've been I've been going for it for a while. You know, uh, he he looks good. He always people always people always forget. Larry Ellison is eighty years old. I know, man. Uh, he he looks great, and uh, you know, kudos to him. Teddy, see you soon, buddy. You bet. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about SBF. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Puck's very own Bill Cohan. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Hey, Ben. Great to be back. So, Bill, I I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about the psychology of our friend Sam Bankman-Fried, who you got to know a little bit way back when. And I also wanted to talk to you about your recent conversation with Anthony Scaramucci, the hedge fund manager and uh, very briefly, the Trump White House director of communications who invested with SBF. First of all, how long have you and the Mooch known each other? How long do you guys go back? Uh, I think we go back to my uh, book about Goldman Sachs to the, it's probably, you know, 13 years now or so since we first met because uh, I interviewed him for my book about Goldman because he Worked at Goldman for a little while in two stints, and uh, he's a, he's a writer too. And he wrote a book about his experiences at Goldman. 
that I found very interesting and useful for my uh, book about Goldman. So, uh, and then, you, know, you know, told me some very interesting Goldman stories. And then, uh, you know, he created Skybridge Capital, his hedge fund, and then the SALT conferences, which now seem to be all, all around the world, but were mostly in Las Vegas for a period of time. And he used to invite me to be a um, interlocutor at those uh, at those conferences. So it was fun. Well, you and the Mooch had a amusing and, and also really poignant conversation uh, yesterday in Puck about his thoughts on the SBF trial. Obviously, um, he invested in FTX. They got pretty close. Scaramucci spent time in the Bahamas with SBF while he was working there. He was also um, his wingman on this trip that you first reported to the Middle East last fall while SBF was sort of racing around trying to raise emergency funding to keep FTX solvent. But it was really interesting to hear Scaramucci's view on SBF, given that he lost all this money when FTX imploded. And I guess I was surprised to hear from your conversation with him that he's not more upset. What did you take away from that conversation? Yeah, and I would just add also, too, that you remember that Sam's uh, venture capital arm, whatever that was called, FTX Ventures, also invested in Skybridge Capital. Yeah, a major stake. You know, a major stake uh, at a $150 million valuation with a option to buy up to 80% of it. So essentially, uh, the Mooch and SBF became business partners. And I think had this not happened, you know, Anthony was going to... Uh, sell his uh, hedge fund to SBF, which kind of blows my mind. And I think, you know, Anthony's view was that, you know, he, he was in the last three innings of his ball game, and uh, uh, SBF was in the first three innings of his. So it was sort of like a perfect symbiotic relationship that the two developed, which is why, you know, last August and September, you know, the Mooch and SBF were traipsing around the Middle East talking to, you know, MBS and MBZ uh, about investing in FTX. I love all these uh, acronyms. I hope everyone can follow it. But so in, in terms of sort of any outside uh, business relationship, I think the one that SBF had with the Mooch was probably as deep and as integrated as any. It seemed like it was sort of fatherly too, that like the, the Mooch sort of took him under his wing as a, as a protege almost. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if you think about it, I mean, he's probably like wondering, whoa, I mean, uh, this guy's like the richest person under 30 and, you know, he, he, he buys a big stake in my uh, firm and wants to buy up to 80% of it and, you know, I can mentor him. I, I'm sure... He was probably like, I know he was sort of like pinching himself. He liked the guy, you know, and, and they decided they were going to, you know, expand the SALT conferences around the world together. That's why there was that SALT conference in the Bahamas that, of course, Michael Lewis infamously interviewed SBF at, where, where right. Zeke uh, Foe thought that that was uh, ridiculous, getting, getting too ridiculously close to your sources. So, I mean, they and... The Mooch had gone down, you know, to the FTX arena and did a charity event with SBF and his f extended family. I mean, you know, they were, um, I don't want to say thick as thieves because that's not fair to the Mooch, but you know, they were very close uh, business associates. Uh, w without the Mooch, I think, uh, having a clue what uh, SBF had done. And I don't say that 
uh, because I'm the Mooch's friend, or naively, uh, as some people might think listening to this, uh, but I, I really don't believe, and I think that that's, you know, I think if he did have more knowledge, he would be uh, testifying uh, in this trial, and obviously he's not, and he's not on the witness list. So, you know, I think that he had no idea what Sam was up to, and that's why I think he was, you know, as shocked as anyone, and and angry for a while. But now, a year later, he's um, become more empathetic about it, more charitable about the whole situation. Yeah, he definitely had a charitable perspective on, on Sam, which I found interesting, but but also sort of a provocative one, too. I mean, he, he sort of yes. psychoanalyzes him a little bit in this yes. conversation with you. And I, I want to tread carefully here because obviously I'm not a psychologist. You are not a psychologist. I don't even play one on TV. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, this is a relevant question in the SPF saga, uh, especially now that he's on trial, because it goes to the question of his intent. He's clearly distractible. We, we all know that. We, we've seen that. It's in the Michael Lewis book. It's something that um, Scaramucci saw up close. He's obviously been diagnosed with either ADD or ADHD. He's on multiple medications for that and also for depression. That has also come up in, in court filings. So, In fact, his lawyers have, have asked the court to, to allow him to have more Adderall. Right. But, but Scaramucci told you that he, he sort of felt like SBF from their time together was almost this high-functioning, heavily medicated zombie, which is sort of this pr- provocative characterization of him. But I, I'm curious how you square that with your own impression of Sam Bankman-Fried, because I, I know you sort of met him briefly for an interview you did it was two years ago. Yeah, December of uh, 21, at literally the, the, the height of his Samness. For the documentary film I've been working on called Finding Satoshi. And we spent 90 minutes with Sam in a midtown Manhattan hotel uh, late uh, one December evening when it was really cold out. And Sam, of course, was wearing the uniform of the t-shirt and the shorts. I mean, w- one thing that I found so interesting about what the Mooch said and re- resonated with me is it that uh, and then combining that with having read Michael Lewis's book is that Sam had to sort of like figure out how to behave in regular kind of normal society, uh, being a combination of eccentric, quirky, uh, brilliant, and, you know, uh, sociable and garrulous. And I think Sam did that very well. I mean, I, I found him to be both charming and, of course, eccentric and quirky, but in a, you know, in a way that you sort of had to sit back and say, wow, this guy's the richest person under 30 in the world. He's built this thing. Of course, I had no idea that he had also seems to have allegedly committed fraud. And so, you know, you just sort of have to say, wow, what a interesting and eccentric person. And, you know, how nice of him to spend 90 minutes of his valuable time with us to be filmed for this documentary. Yeah, well, you bring up a great point, which is there is also this question of whether Sam might be a a sociopath of of some caliber. And again, I'm not a psychologist, but like literally in a clinical sense, I mean, in the Lewis book, he has this letter from Sam to Caroline Ellison, who was running his hedge fund and was also his on again, off again girlfriend, where Sam says, you know, I don't have real emotions. I fake my empathy. I've been training myself to, you know, use certain facial responses in different social contexts. You know, again, it goes back to this question of intent. You know, did did he intend to defraud customers, defraud investors? But it also raises the question of how so many people were duped by the guy. 
uh, you know, really sophisticated investors from Sequoia, Anthony Scaramucci, all kinds of people didn't see the red flags where where maybe they ought to have. Yeah. And the, the other thing that Sam said that Anthony reminded me of was in the testimony he was planning to give to Congress the day he was arrested uh, last December. So he couldn't do it, obviously. The last line is about essentially how he's been sad, S-A-D, sad his whole life. And, you know, I think one of Anthony's theories is that uh, he did all this to sort of get back at the people who made him feel sad or who didn't accept him in regular, you know, social society, uh, you know, social circles. Um, And this was his way of showing those people uh, what he was all about and what he could do. And, you know, I don't know whether he, uh, you know, did all this intentionally, you know, or not. You know, that sort of uh, is what's being uh, litigated uh, downtown now. It's not looking good, though, I, I have to say. And, and I'm not really sure why Sam felt the need to do all these things. Uh, you know, as, as Anthony points out, at any, at any time, you know, he could have sort of stopped. He could have kind of admitted that Alameda was sort of a disaster as an investment vehicle and just focus on FTX, the crypto exchange that actually was doing pretty well. Look, I mean, Madoff carried on his scam for decades, right? So people fall for these things for a long time. With Madoff, it was, I'm not going to let you in. And so people, of course, want what they can't have, which is they wanted to get into Madoff, even he wouldn't let them. So he begged to get in and then he would get in and he would use their money to pay off, you know, the old uh, investors. Sam just essentially took the customer money that was put on the FTX exchange and used it at Alameda and for his own, you know, benefit. Not, you know, not a lot, not, I mean, but no, I mean, enough, right? I mean, he wasn't buying yachts and penthouse apartments in Manhattan. He bought a penthouse apartment in the Bahamas. Well, sure, well, sure. There, there was a multi-hundred million dollar real estate portfolio in the, uh, there is. the Bahamas. There is. Nothing to sneeze at. Yes, nothing to sneeze at. No, he has nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, that way. I don't know whether he had a jet or not. I mean, he seemed to jet around a lot. You know, he put the FTX name on all sorts of buildings and and umpire uniforms and paid all sorts of people shitloads of money. Yeah, why do we fall for these things uh, for so long? I mean, um, some people uh, just do. Some people like to take risks. They enjoy taking risks. Uh, and, you know, risk-taking is an important part of the way the economy works, our economy works. If, you know, people have to take risks with their money or else the whole thing uh, doesn't work. Now the question is, you know, can you be duped? Sure. And by that, that wasn't the only uh, scam that was perpetrated. That was the most spectacular scam and the one with the most extraordinary uh, arc of the narrative, if you will, because... You know, six, literally, you know, a year before he was uh, arrested or so, or more than a year, he was on the cover of Fortune and Forbes as like the next J.P. Morgan. So the arc of this narrative was particularly acute. Yeah, obviously, you know, we in the media are not uh, innocent either. We like to gawk at and celebrate these people on their their rise and also round trip on the fall. Build them up and tear them down, as I like to say. (laughs) <laughs> that's right. That's that's the job of the journalist. Bill, we got to leave it there. But uh, okay. thank you, as always. See you next time. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. 
As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.